and welcome to the How CMOs Commit podcast. I'm Margaret Malloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale. This is a podcast to explore how the world's top CMOs are building their brands and the professional commitments they are making as leaders. This podcast is a recording of our Future of Branding series. From the decisions facing CMOs to the commitments they are forging, the conversations are uniquely vulnerable and strategic. Please be sure to listen to the end when I provide my reflections. This is how CMOs commit. Hello and welcome to Siegel & Gale Future of Branding Roundtable. Every fortnight we meet five leading CMOs to explore how they are building their brands. I'm Margaret Malloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer at Siegel & Gale. Siegel & Gale is a preeminent brand strategy, design and experience firm. Today's provocation, every company is an experiment. In order for the experiment to work, you need to have a hypothesis about a market opportunity, test it, measure results, learn and evolve your strategies and executions accordingly. The velocity at which a company can repeat this process, essentially adapting to a new context, is a measure of a capacity for innovation. Now, COVID-19 has changed the context for every business rendering innovation vital to all companies. Today, we will explore the interrelationships across brand building, growth, and innovation from the perspectives and stories of five digital first companies. But first, I'd like to hear from everyone in the audience on Twitter. Please tweet us using hashtag future of branding. Let us know where you are joining from, and in one word, what is your company's current attitude to brand? Please feel free to continue to tweet us during the conversation and indeed with some screen grabs or pictures of your office. We love to see where you're joining us from. So with that, let's now meet our panel. As ever, I'm joined by five marketing leaders. I'm going to get the five voices in the room but this time, I'm going to restrict all of you to one word also. So let's open, starting with you. I'm joined by Andrea Brimmer. Andrea is the CMO of Ally. Andrea, what's your company's attitude to brand today? Asset. Patricio Spagnoletto is the CMO of Hulu. So, Pato, what's your attitude to brand? Critical. Gail Moody Bird is the CMO of Noodle.ai. Joining us from California, Gail. Recognition. Thank you, Gail. Also in the Bay Area, we have Heather Freeland, who heads marketing at Lyft. Core. And finally, we go over to London to meet Fadil Altarzi, the founder and CEO of Nextfort University. Conflicted. Interesting set of words. We will get back to those momentarily. Meanwhile, I'm now going to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, starting with Andrea. So Andrea, CMO of Ally, Digital Bank, 
been around 10 years in the wake of the last financial crisis, but of course a rich heritage over 100 years through your association with General Motors. Give us a sense for the founding idea and how for Ally and how that may have changed in COVID era. Yeah, actually, you know, the, the background of the company is that we were GMAC previous to becoming Ally. We were part of GM for more than 90 years. When GM went through their bankruptcy, they actually spun us off and we became an independent marketplace competitor. But we knew that if we were going to survive and thrive, we needed to completely recreate our business model. And so we did something that seems intuitive now, but at the time was highly unique. The first thing we did is we said, all right, we're going to disrupt this category, banking and finance, that's largely been the same for over 100 years. It's had very little change. And we're going to disrupt it in two ways. The first way is we're going to put the customer at the center of everything that we do. We're going to solve for pain points. We're going to think like customers and not bankers and marketers and talk about everything we don't like about banking and solve for that. And two, we're going to launch digital only, no brick and mortar, no heavy legacy of, um, of, of fees, a very unique proposition. And we're going to bet that people are going to bank in the palm of their hand. And we did that in the same year that the iPhone launched. And so it was a huge bet that we took, but we felt like that was the best path. And of course, much has changed. The financial services sector in this era is in a much better position from a liquidity perspective, dot Frank and all the rest. How would you characterize how your founding idea has manifest now in, in COVID? What are you seeing in terms of behaviors in banking? Yeah, I mean, what we like to say, we launched, when we launched, everybody said, why are you launching a bank? And our, our response was always, the world doesn't need another bank, it needs a better bank. And that's something that I think has persisted. And what you're seeing is that there's this extreme flight to digital, right? All of my colleagues here on the phone, on the Zoom here will tell you probably the same thing, right? This incre incredible flight to digital. And for us, as other banks, I think are trying to move their book to digital adaptation, we were born in the digital world. And so we're really leaning heavily into this digital enablement and this acceptance of consumers of trying digital products in ways they never have before. And so COVID for us has just accelerated the consumer, not only opinion, but their acceptance of digital banking, which for us has really led to incredible, not only customer acquisition, but just an incredible scaling of our business right now. So talk to us about brand. I believe your word was asset. Why did you say that? And how does that manifest itself in your behaviors? I think collectively as a leadership team across Ally, have always believed that the brand is our most precious asset. Our CEO, Jeff Brown, talks about brand being our most precious asset always. And brand is literally a part of every single decision, every single conversation, every single investment that we make at Ally. We know that it is the key differentiator for us. And brand is not just something that's owned by marketing. When you truly have an amazing brand, it's owned by everybody from the person that's on the phone with the customer every single day to the account executive that's out in the field calling on the dealers to the CEO who's making decisions about where to invest. And so that's 
that's the way that we think about brand. It differentiates us. If you think about the way that we are thought of in the category, our likability is three times the nearest competitor. Our social sentiment is continually in the plus 90% range. Our brand value has tripled every year for the last three years. And we attribute that to this deep and ingrained focus on the customer and how that translates into building a better brand. And that's why we think about our brand as this critical asset. We don't think we'd be where we were without the strength of the Ally brand. Often digital first companies, Andrea, have this struggle between investing and you use that word invest versus expenditures around customer acquisition. So that conflict between brand building and customer acquisition cost. Is that a conversation at Ally? How do you process that? Do you see it as a dichotomy or a trade-off? Yeah, I mean, look, we still consider ourselves a young company. As you said at the onset, we're really only 10 years old. Our awareness is around 50%, which means that one out of every two people that you're going to talk to still doesn't know who Ally is. And so we have believed strongly that you have to invest in marketing and you have to in invest in the brand. And we know that as a digital brand, somebody can't drive down the street and see our branches on the corner like they can with our competitors. So we have to be a tip of tongue brand. And in order to do that, we have to keep our foot on the gas when it comes to investing in marketing. And so that's definitely something that continually is in front of all of us when we're making investment decisions. That said, there's always this balance, right? As a digital brand, there is a certain consumer expectation around ease of doing business with us, around staying on not always the cutting edge, but at least the leading edge with regard to digital enablement. And we really, I think, have intersected that in a great way where our focus is all around financial solutions. And financial solutions are very different than necessarily investment in technology. It's around how can we collectively between marketing and the businesses provide solutions that surround our customers with an ecosystem that basically makes them want to bank with us, makes them want to learn more about their money with us and be a part of this brand in a, in a strong usage way. Looking at some of your programs post-COVID and in this era, I'm struck by some of the accommodations you've offered, particularly in the auto space, the dealers and the uh, consumers in helping them with their financing challenges. Anything particularly noteworthy there as it pertains to brand building or just in general, good providing to customers? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great example of what I was referencing earlier, which is when the whole organization believes so deeply in the brand and our tagline is do it right, it's part of our ethos, then you do the right thing. And so we were one of the, and, and I considered that a big brand act. Instead of necessarily going out and creating more inertia in the marketplace around behind marketing, we made the decision to create inertia in the marketplace by doing the right thing for our customers. And so within the first week of COVID really hitting this country hard, we introduced the most comprehensive and sweeping forbearance program in the industry. Four months of no auto payments, four months of no mortgage payments, 
we suppressed literally every fee at Ally, whether we were overnighting a debit card to you or sending you checks. And then we did some things that I think were really special. One, any customer that had a negative balance with us, we went and gifted that customer that negative balance. So if you were $300 upside down in your checking account, we put $300 in your checking account as a gift to you so that you would get the entirety of your stimulus check. We also gave forbearance packages to a lot of the dealers, over 18,000 dealers that we do business with, a lot of the dealers that we do business with, suppressing all of their payments for four months. And then we did a lot for our employees. We established an employee relief fund. We did a one-time $1,200 payment to all our employees so that they had a little extra cash. We expanded all of our benefits and we've got almost 100% of our people working from home and we've been in that space since March. And then we also gifted about $3 million to Detroit and Charlotte, which are our two major headquarter cities for COVID relief. So simple, big brand act centered around do the right thing. So you mentioned employees and you have a significant 8,000 plus workforce, but still a relatively new company. Talk to us about any rituals that you've established at Ally that creates that desired culture. Well, first of all, we start every meeting by reading a customer letter. We believe so strongly in having the customer in the room with us that we we select customer feedback, good and bad. And we read that before every meeting starts to remind ourselves why we are here and what it is that we're doing. Really, every conversation has the customer included in it. I will tell you as a company, we will spend hours you know, debating the smallest thing around what's right to do for the customer. I would venture to guess conversations that a lot of other of our competitors in this category never would even think about. And those have become kind of heated conversations. We are continually doing what I'll call brand roadshows. So we're out with the 8,000 plus employees talking about the brand, sharing new work, sharing our philosophies, our ethos to ensure that everybody feels like they're part of the brand. And then our CEO is really good about every single week. He does either a video or he does a, a letter, an email to the entire organization and talks about the accomplishments of the organization, talks about the wins, talks about the bright side and reminds everybody of the importance of what we do and the importance of that in our customers' lives. And I think that just constant reinforcement centers us around the things that are important. Thank you for that, Andrea. Let's now head over to Pasadena and visit with Pato Spagnoletto at Hulu. So Pato, leading premium streaming provider, relatively new company also, lots of entertainment options out there when you started, linear TV and more. What's the founding idea behind Hulu? How has that evolved? Sure, and thank you for having me. So Hulu started about 13 years ago as almost a defense strategy from large linear companies, including Fox, Disney, NBC, Comcast, because they saw the world moving in towards this online consumption and they didn't quite know what to do. And so many of them started to just invest in the startup called Hulu. But from Hulu's perspective, we looked at it very differently. Like Andrea was saying, it was really about the consumer. And at the time, really your options for watching TV was on TV or on TV. And you got to watch a show when they told you to watch a show and that's it once a week. And that whole premise is just flawed as it relates to not only how consumers want to watch, but honestly, even just how content was created and distributed. So Hulu started when there weren't as many competitors and it was really just a hypothesis that consumers wanted to change the way that they view TV. 
And you fast forward to today, 13 years later, and not only has that hypothesis been proven out, but a lot of people have jumped in. And so there are now multiple, multiple, like literally in the hundreds and thousands of services that kind of will work on this type of model. And so for Hulu, as more players come into our ecosystem and as people move away from linear TV into over the top, our bread and butter has been the same as day one, which is we focus on the consumer as it relates to the content that we provide, as it relates to the product experience that they consume that content. And last but not least, obviously very dear for me, is the brand that they consume it in. So those are the three premises that are really important and have been since the, the beginning of times for Hulu. Pacho, you pointed out that there are now many players in the streaming space. And of course, you have that relationship with Disney, which gives you a certain perspective. How are you approaching innovation? Same as we did to 10 years ago, which is with the consumer in mind. So look, for us, innovation is around taking informed risks. And we've done this in multiple ways. You know, 10 years ago, Hulu was all about distributing other people's content. We then started to create our own content. And, you know, there were a few shows that did better than others, but it wasn't really until a breakthrough show called The Handmaid's Tale that it put Hulu on the map as a true uh, purveyor of great originals. Same thing for the product. You know, Hulu was at first a free product with an ad-supported model, but we've since now innovated to have a still an ad-supported product, a ad-free product. And in 2017, we actually launched a live TV service. So if you want to watch news and sports, and since then, we've now grown to be the number one digital MVPD player in the market. Because not only did we just launch another linear service, we launched it together with the core of Hulu. And so it's built on our brand promise. It wasn't a sharp left off of what we promised our consumers. Pato, talk about brand. I know it's something that's near and dear to your heart. How do you think about brand at Hulu? Well, brand is really what differentiates us from our competition. Look, at the end of the day, everybody has a great platform. Everybody has some great content, at least on the tier one players. But what makes the difference is that emotional attachment to the service that you go to first and the service that you go to most. In COVID-19 period, we, our industry was one of the few that unfortunately benefited of because of it as more people were at home and were looking to you know, consume more content. So we were not in a frenzy of, oh my gosh, what do we do? Our business is going sideways. We were kind of receiving this, this organic demand. And for us, as we looked at that organic demand, we quickly shifted our focus away from how do we bring in more people to how do we retain these people and how do we build an emotional connection with them. That happened through a new brand campaign that was called Hulu Has What You're Feeling, which is really about regardless of how you feel right now, we have something for you. But beyond the brand campaign, just on every touch point that we have, we really deeply believe that every touch point will either improve or make that relationship worse. And it's up to us to make it better. And every one of those touch points ladders up to ultimately something that cannot really be measured. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of research projects out there, but brand love is really something that's you feel inside. And it's that irrational reason why when you log on to your TV, you go to Hulu first versus uh, some of the other services. And similarly, employee engagement is another vital quality of an organization. So talk to us, as Andrea did, about some rituals that builds that cohesiveness among, I believe you call them hooligans? 
We do. Uh, we are we are all hooligans, unless you're here for the first 90 days, in which case you're a nooligan. But look, the culture at Hulu is like no other I've seen in, in any other place. And I've been lucky enough to work in some really great companies. It is a culture where people are truly driven by a common goal and a common objective. In terms of you know rituals, like look for us, it is absolutely the case that we will debate at length using tons of data and then judgment on what are the right decisions, whether it be on the product side or on the content side. But more specifically, like even within, so Hulu has a set of, of core values that we live every single day. But beyond those, even just within the marketing organizations, like we have our own guiding principles, one of which is really near and dear to my heart, which is marketing really should serve as a function of growth. I think in many companies, marketing has traditionally been more of a cost center and a corporate marketing function. But almost regardless of the business model, marketing is an investment in the future growth of a company. And as such, the reason why I bring that up is because it's really important that every marketer, regardless of the role, understand the connection of their job to how it drives the business forward. And so we spend a lot of time on making that connection. And then beyond that, look, we do monthly wind downs. We share everything we can with every single hooligan. We do Huluween, which is this year is probably one of the saddest things is that we won't be able to do Huluween together. But literally, these are moments that are hard to describe. But when you experience them, you, you know that you're part of something special. Thank you for the Pato. So staying in the Bay Area, let's head over to Gail Moody Bird, who leads marketing at Noodle AI leading artificial intelligence company in yes. the manufacturing area. So fascinating space. Tell us specifically about the founding idea that inspired Noodle AI. Yes, thank you. So we're a little bit different. We are a B2B company and we are selling artificial intelligence software to our customers in manufacturing and supply chain. So a little bit different in terms of the connection, but there's actually two intentions that I'd really like to talk about as I thought about this question. One of them is our founding intention, but the other is really a core value that's come to the forefront since COVID-19. So our not so secret plan is to create a world without waste. So as we are helping improve profit margins and ship more product and make manufacturing facilities more efficient, we're actually helping them reduce waste. We are helping people reduce the number of expedites, the products that need to be flown around. We are improving product quality. Thus, we are limiting the amount of product that they have to destroy, product that has to be sold at a lower cost. So, so in that way, we really are impacting the planet to such a degree that when you look at the amount of CO2 that we eliminated last year, it's 37,000 cars taken off the road or 10% of the cars in San Francisco. So as we work with each customer and each customer engagement, we not only look at the financial benefits, but what we're doing in terms of impacting CO2. So creating a world without waste really allows us to differentiate our brand. Yeah, and stand behind that principle. So I want to make sure I understand, Gail, the premise. So every time your software, your AI, improves a manufacturing process for one of your B2B clients, efficiency ensues, and therefore the planet is in a better position because there's less waste. Yes, yes. That's essentially it. Yes. And there's actually a way to measure the CO2 impact. And we've got a person on our team who does nothing but that. 
for each of our engagements. And if you go to the homepage of our website, you'll see it's one of our founding tenants. It's really very important to us. You know, lots of us have worked in the enterprise software space for a long time. And at this point in our careers, we really want to make a difference. And as we look at all of the challenges with global warming today, being purpose-driven is something that gets us up every day and gets us really excited about what we do. Go ahead. What was the second one? Elaborate on core values and maybe the intersection of the core values and your brand word. Yes. So there's another core value in our organization, and that is something we call Be Chill. And Be Chill is an acronym for Be, Bring It, Bring Your Full Self Every Day, Connect, Connect Within the Organization with Our Customers and Have Lasting Relationships, Help, be generous. And that's going to be a theme for COVID-19. Innovate, learn, and live. Work-life balance is really important. But what we have found during this crisis is the ability that we have with our product to help our customers has been really profound. We work with a lot of supply chain companies who just imagined the chaos in the food supply chain. Demand is spiking. It's declining. Planners are burning out. Tools that they'd been using to plan their businesses were failing. And so there was a lot of stress within the system. We actually helped our customers create war rooms where they could use our software. They could bring in extraneous factors that they'd never thought about before, like hiring healthcare workers or CDC forecasts to try to predict demand around the globe. We actually watched demand fluctuate from Asia to Europe to the U.S. And so we started to give our U.S. customers some indication of what we'd learned from those other continents that would start to impact their business. So we were really essential to their continuity plans as they were moving through this. So we have these really interesting data scientists who create these artificial intelligence models. They were actually every day updating the models with new factors as we were learning more things about what the leading indicators were of what demand would be. And then we had customers like steel companies who were trying to work at full capacity and be more efficient, but that became less of an issue. Demand declined. So we started working on things that were more important to them, like improving product quality. So we were right there, sort of toe-to-toe with all of our customers, expanding our product's ability to really serve these needs on the fly. And we found in terms of our business continuity, as opposed to people pausing contracts, which is always a risk in B2B, uh, they actually doubled down with us and said, you were with us. You helped us through this crisis. You know, that's a great indication of our partnership. Let's double down and do more business. So it was good for business, but it was just great for our customer and partner ecosystem to be able to, to be helpful and to demonstrate one of our core values. Well, thank you for that. And I'm going to try to adopt the be chill. Some it comes more naturally than others. <laughs> We're good at California. So yeah. someone, yes, indeed. Someone who's also in California, and I know to be chill, is Heather Freeland, who heads marketing at Lyft. Good morning, Heather. How are you? Oh, good, good. Thank you for having me. So, you know, you're in an interesting position in the ride share app category, maybe even a challenger position, if, if I could suggest yeah. that. Fair. Uh, that puts you in a slightly different perch in this conversation. How does that status or dynamic manifest in your thinking around brand? 
Great question. I mean, it's really interesting because I actually think it's a really fun position to sit in, right? Because it makes you hungry for change and hungry to make a difference and hungry to stand out. And that is inspiring and motivating to me as a leader, but also to my team members who get up every day to, to stake our claim in the category. So for us, as we think about brand, it is about, and brand has always, and I mentioned this in my opening uh, word, it has always been core to who Lyft is. And it has always been how we've really differentiated ourselves. And so for us, as we think about building the brand, it is how we set ourselves apart, how we bring our values to bear in everything that we do so that we can, can really not just separate ourselves from the competition, but really start to lead the way and push thinking in new ways. And how do you think about this as you distribute your marketing budget? Back to that earlier discussion, I know so many earlier stage companies are struggling with customer acquisition cost versus investing in brand and the distinction in transparency across those two approaches. How do you think about that at Lyft? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, we are trying to learn more every day about how to find that balance because I see the brand as an investment in customer acquisition. And because we are digital first, everything we do has a test and learn component to it. So we are constantly running tests and experiments to better understand the interplay between our brand dollars and our acquisition or our engagement dollars so that we can think about them not as two separate buckets, but as complementary and working together to um, to really drive additional customer acquisition. Um, because I think it, all too often the two teams sit separately or on other sides of the building and never talk, but they are inherently linked. And and you really need to, to make sure that you are, you are building the brand with the goal of driving business results, whether that's acquisition or, or deepening engagement and loyalty with your customers. Heather, you're also in a very competitive space from the perspective of employees, employee acquisition, retention. Any rituals you would share that help drive the Lyft culture? Yeah, you know, it's it's super interesting. Our mission is very core to everything that we do. The, the Lyft mission is to improve people's lives with the world's best transportation. And what we have done is to really cascade that down into what does that look like in our product suite? What does that look like in how we show up in communities? And what does that look like in terms of how we show up for each other every day? And one of the things that we've done that's been particularly powerful is to really at this moment in time is to amplify that mission internally. So for example, when we think about improving people's lives with the world's best transportation, one of the things that we are investing heavily in is our Lift Up program, which is designed to provide transportation access to people who who are need access to jobs, to food, to um, essential services, to medical care. And so we are, are investing in deep partnerships externally so that we can make sure that we are helping people who need transportation get to where they need to go. We believe it's a fundamental part of, of lifting people out of economic adversity, which is that much more important right now. So we are taking that premise and amplifying it both through our marketing, but we're amplifying it internally as well. We want to make sure our employees know that we are giving back to our communities, that they can be a part of that, that they are here for a reason. 
and that they are part of contributing back to the communities that we operate in. On the core values piece, there are three that we lean into as a company. We focus on be yourself, uplift others, and make it happen. And when we talk about what that looks like internally, we actually reinforce that in every step of the, the employee journey. So it's a big part of our employee orientation, but then we celebrate it in our monthly company all hands. It's actually a core part of your employee evaluation. How are you uplifting others within the company? How are you lifting up, uplifting others in the community? And so we believe it's it needs to be baked into the DNA of the company, how each of us show up as individuals in order for us to show up as a company that way. And nine times out of 10, when you talk to employees about why they come to Lyft and why they stay at Lyft, it is those values. It is that mission. And so it's really critical for us to live that inside and out. Well, thank you. And thank you for everything you're doing for the vulnerable populations in our cities, as well as the uplifting efforts internally and throughout the community. So now let's head over to London, patiently waiting. Fadil Al-Tarzi is the founder and CEO of Nexford University, I believe the youngest company on the panel this afternoon. Hello and good evening. Hello, Margaret. Thank you for having me today. Probably the youngest on the panel and maybe the youngest university in the world as well. Possibly. Well, a fascinating time to be in the education space, which is a good way for us to anchor on your idea. What's the founding idea? Why does the world need another university? Sure. Well, as I was listening to Andrea speak earlier, I think it's really a very, very similar narrative where the world doesn't necessarily need a new university, but needs a different university, one that's designed to prioritize you know, the interest of learners ahead of profitability and ahead of metrics that really aren't aligned to the success of learners. So when you look across all the sectors we have today, you see that you know, there's been massive disruption. The way you know, the banking sector operates today or the transportation sector or entertainment, you know, the way they operate today is incomparable to how they operated 50 or even 100 years ago. But when you look at the core university experience, COVID aside, it's really comparable directly. Like if you think a year from now, how people are, were going to school compared that to 50 years ago, is almost identical. So it's shocking. So we think that the, you know, the, the world needs a new model, needs a change. It needs a university that's affordable, that's really based on skills, that teaches people what they need to apply in the workplace, that's flexible. So essentially, think of it as the next generation university is, is how we think of ourselves. And you're an online global university, accredited in the U.S., correct? Yeah, so we are online 100%. We are an American university. We're targeting primarily emerging markets across the world. So you captured my attention when you said conflicted as your word associated with brand. Talk us through that conflict and maybe we can attempt to resolve the tension. <laughs> I hope you can. I think the, the conflict comes from, you know, the challenges that everyone spoke about today. You know, how much do you invest on brand versus customer acquisition? And I am a huge believer in, in brand and in the ROI of brand. But I think the fact of the matter is the ROI of brand is long-term. 
And I think, you know, having worked with Siegel Gale, not because we're on this panel, but I mean, to, to be very truthful, I became a much bigger sort of believer in brand post working with, with your London team in particular. So uh, the conflict really stems from here. As a startup, especially, you know, when you're looking at your horizon during your first few years, you're looking at the return you're going to get within, I don't know, you know, six months, maximum 12 months. You're not looking 24 months from now. You know, how's my brand going to pay off? So I just find it really, really difficult. I find it to be the, this ongoing sort of tension between building brand. And the irony is you sort of know that if I invest more in brand, it's going to result in significantly lower customer acquisition costs, maybe on the medium and long term. But how do I get there? And the reality is the venture capital world is brutal, right? No one's going to be like, yeah, yeah, I believe your brand is amazing. You know, your tax going to go down 50% two years from now. I'm going to wait. It's not like that, right? They want to see that monthly decline. And that, that's why there's tension and there's conflict between the two. Fascinating. Also, of course, in the education space, brand arguably plays an even greater role to the extent that someone is credentializing themselves on the back of your offering. So fascinating tension dynamic there. But let's move to another component of your organization, which is fascinating, which is how do you build culture? How do you create that employee brand? Always a challenge in academia, but in the context of students, professional educators, and now in a distributed global context. Any rituals you've started as a new company that you believe are powerful? You're right. Uh, I'd like to go back, Margaret, to the, the conflict mode, because in many ways, I think that's how we build culture internally, in the sense that the conflict is amplified by the fact that we're trying to build a new university. So the concept of a startup university doesn't really exist, right? Are you a startup or are you a university? So that in itself causes conflict. So the way to resolve that, I think, is to lean on mission. So ultimately, everyone that comes to Nextford from an employee perspective, you know, are coming because they're believers in the mission. They want to enable this greater, you know, economic mobility across the world through access to high quality education. And they want to see a new model. We have people coming over from whether it's Stanford or Harvard or Google. The point is they're coming here because they want to enable this change. But then again, from a brand perspective, too much change too fast for a university is also too difficult, right? And there aren't you know, millions of early adopters across the world who want to get a bachelor degree from a brand doing things in a completely different way. So again, there's this continuous sort of dichotomy of you know, how much change is too much too fast. And from a regulator perspective as well, and I hope they're not listening today, they're not the most you know, innovative out there. So, you know, they also don't want to see too much change too fast. So again, so going back internally, I'm not a big, you know, sort of rituals founder, but I think the way you build, you know, that brand culture internally is through continuous reinforcement throughout everything that we do. So as opposed to, you know, huddling every morning and saying something cool, you know, in every conversation, we're focused on specific values and how our actions are representative of these values. And we come up with certain terms like, a simple one would be learners. Like we don't use the term students at Nextford because we think it's, you know, people don't want to, it's like teaching versus learning. We don't really use the term teaching because we don't think people want to be taught. We think people want to learn. Uh, you know, lecturing as well as another term that's sort of banned internally. Like we don't think people want to give lecture that, right? They want to learn. So instructor, again, you know, you're not an instructor, you're a faculty member sort of facilitating, you know, some, so it's by using these terms of what they actually represent, I think, is what builds the culture. 
tremendous, fascinating thought around the power of language in framing culture. Really fabulous insight. Well, thank you for that, Fidel. So now let's go around the virtual room once again, starting with Andrea. And Andrea, I want to really hone in on innovation in the marketing area and your commitment to connecting innovation and growth. So where are you seeing innovation in marketing today at Ally? You know, we actually have a dedicated team within marketing and their entire job is around marketing innovation. And so I literally have them scouring conferences, content, interacting with uh, various uh, suppliers in different spaces, um, reaching out to other brands that we admire that have done interesting things. You know, I think all of the folks on the phone here today will probably be on my hit list, especially Gail as we talk through you know, innovation. And that team does nothing but bring those innovations to the full marketing and communications team, share those innovations, and then ideate around how we can use it in marketing. So one example is that we're really leaning into gamification. Gamification is such an important way that people learn and nobody wants to really seek out um, financial education. It's it's a it's more on the dry side. And so we're doing really interesting things all around. For instance, we wrote a children's book called Planet Z and the Money Tree, and it's aimed at elementary school children. And it talks about economic mobility and it teaches them around about financial literacy. We're bringing that to life as an entire franchise right now with everything from Bluetooth, you know, piggy banks with the care characters to a series around that. We're doing integrations with uh, video games and platforms right now to integrate our brand into those. We're doing things with sponsorships and events that we already have. For instance, in the NASCAR space, we have a relationship with Jimmy Johnson and Hendrick Motorsports. We built an 8-bit racing game. We went old school to have some fun and we put that out there because during this pandemic, people are looking for just entertaining things to do and it was a great way to engage with our consumers. So innovation as a digital brand has to be a core tenant of everything that you do. The consumer expects it. And frankly, my team thrives on it. And so that notion of gamification, whether we're building apps for people to learn financial literacy to hiding pennies across America and creating virtual scavenger hunts, that innovation, I think, has really led to our personality as a disruptor in the marketing space. And finally, ever so briefly, Andrea, what's your personal commitment to connecting brand to growth and innovation? I have a stated personal objective that I will have a very active learning agenda. I think that marketing changes constantly and the ability for marketers to keep up with the pace of change is negated unless you have an active learning agenda. So I try and allocate a third of my time to that active learning agenda, whether it's talking to other CMOs, whether it's visiting companies that I admire, whether it's consuming content, whether it's taking classes, whether it's attending panels, and I try and bring that back. And I think you have to lead by that example. Thank you for that. So Pato, sounds like Andrea is in the entertainment game as well, with the introduction of every brand, arguably in entertainment and content. How are you staying innovative at Hulu? 
Sure. Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Both of them are born from an insight from our consumers. One was when COVID hit all of us, we knew that more users wanted to uh, co-view. And so we had a short but important debate. And the reason why I want to call it out was around a feature that allowed users to view together, but obviously distance in different places. And the little debate was like, well, do we want to do this because we're not the first to market or other players who have this feature? And it lasted really 30 seconds because it doesn't matter whether someone else has it or not. What matters is whether consumers want it. And so it's not innovation for innovation's sake, it's innovation for the benefit of our consumers. And we did launch that, you know, by our standards fairly quickly. It was in a matter of weeks as a feature and, and has adopted well. The second one, which is also consumer insight driven, was we do very well in the adult animation category. We have a lot of content from third party. We have original content and we saw that category do very well. And so as such, we as marketers decided to celebrate that and launched our first HaHa Awards. That was an online kind of awards where everybody got to vote for, you know, silly things like the best uh, fight scene, the best, you know, things that are probably not appropriate for this panel, but it's adult animation. And it did really well. And we put zero media dollars behind it. It was all done through our earned media and we received almost 500,000 participants in it. So look, those are things that to me are so crucial. And to preempt probably your next question in terms of my personal commitment to innovation is, look, I think everyone, regardless of tenure or title, is a leader. And as a leader, we have to treat them with the respect and empowerment and accountability that it comes with that title. And so the HaHa Awards for me was such a great example of somebody on the team had this idea and carried it all the way through to success. And I had almost nothing, no, actually not almost, I had nothing to do with it except for like take credit and talk to you about it. And I think that is so wonderful to have a group of marketers that are leaning into it and are not waiting for somebody to tell them what to do, but are actually telling us what they're doing. And I think that for me, my personal commitment is to foster a culture where I'm the one trying to catch up versus everyone else. Beautiful. So Gail, I know integral to your company everywhere is innovation. Would you briefly highlight an example of your focus on innovation in the marketing or brand area specifically? Okay. All right. Uh, well, just a quick thing. Such a timely question. We've just rebranded the marketing team. So my title is actually Chief Magic Officer. We've Ooh. got a creative brand warrior. We've got a chief storyteller. So we're trying to inculcate the team in thinking about innovation and creativity as a part of what they do. But a great example is try to illustrate the concept of artificial intelligence. So people understand the result, they understand the problem, but what is the magic in between? So we're always constantly looking at illustrations like New York Times visualizations or some recent videos describing AlphaGo and how AlphaGo actually worked. And so we're taking that kind of creativity of an abstract concept, but turning it into business value. So so our creative brand warrior is quite busy right now thinking about illustrations and innovations that help really explain data science to business people in a way that's comprehensible and distinguishes distinguishes us from our competition. So we're doing a lot of a lot of video work, a lot of illustrations, a lot of innovations in that area in the product marketing camp, which is also a part of what what I do, what I'm responsible for. And your personal commitment to making sure growth is tied to marketing and brand? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I was just on a call with the leadership team before this call. I want to be accountable for revenue. For a four-year-old company, innovation in a vacuum from what it generates for the bottom line and for the top line is we just, we can't afford it. Back to the question of the tension of brand versus demand. If I can't generate demand through the innovation that I do, then I'm not doing my job. So my commitment to the organization is hold me as accountable for revenue as you do the chief revenue officer. And I signed up for that this morning. Good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We're all rooting for you, Gail, but I'm looking forward to seeing the advances at Noodle AI. So, Heather, from your perspective, keeping the marketing innovative, and as you indicated at the beginning, your posture in terms of a challenger brand almost means that's what you've signed up for. Yes. Anything you'd highlight, and also if you would addend it with your commitment to connecting brand to growth. Yes. So it's really interesting right now because you know, probably our company, our business, our industry has been hit harder than than many on this call. You know, people are staying still, they're not moving. And that's the premise of our business right now. So innovation is absolutely crucial to us right now in terms of both for the business and understanding new customer segments that are emerging, new use cases that are emerging, and how do we respond to them? So we're trying to bring in insights into every single thing we do, not just about, about our direct customers, but about broader trends that are happening that can influence product in surprising and new ways. So one of the things that we are trying to do is not just really dig in on how our customer is moving at this moment in time, but also how they're engaging with brands. It's entirely different than it was six months ago, how they're engaging with content, how they're engaging with media. Trends are changing in terms of their expectations of brands, that they want action from them, that they want to see that they are doing something to take charge at this moment in time when they don't feel leadership coming from other places. And so for us, that has really fueled the innovation and the, the brand strategy that we have right now is these evolving expectations that are that are shifting and changing in every minute of what brands can do for society right now. So for me, staying on top of those trends is, is everything. In terms of growth, we are similarly to Gail trying to, to draw a very direct connection between brand and growth. I'm fortunate enough to oversee both in our organization. But even with our brand metrics, one of the key ways that I've tried to build credibility for brand and build a case for it internally is by drawing, creating proxy metrics that are directly connected to business impact for our brand campaigns. So we're really helping educate people internally that brand can move the needle for the business. And that isn't just a hand wavy, funny storytelling, you know, group off on the side, but that we are core and very focused on delivering impact. What might one of those metrics be? A proxy metric that's driving most head nodding? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things is, you know, you think about what is the proxy metric for consideration, right? Like typically seen as a, a brand metric. What does that look like in our product? In our product, it may be, you know, literally entering in a destination. And can we connect that very directly to our to our brand advertising? So so we're doing a lot of really innovative testing and experiments to help us better understand the correlation between those two. 
fascinating time to explore customer behavior shifts. And finally, Fadil, innovation, obviously a startup, innovation is the order of the day. Anything you would emphasize as it pertains to marketing innovation? I think for us, a big part of how we benefit from innovation is bridging gaps between learners and product development teams internally uh, and trying to show a direct correlation in monetary terms of what is the impact of actually listening to your customers and adapting to what they need. And in higher ed, in many ways, that's a foreign principle. You know, universities don't typically really listen to what the students want and ask for and let alone adapt to them. So to us, we try to make a direct uh, link between, you know, understanding customer feedback and uh, product development and how that impacts things like churn and, and revenue and, uh, and the referrals as well. And that's obviously using both data technology, but also cultural understandings. I think that's a huge part of how we try to adapt the brand in each market to the different cultures that we, we operate in and, and use brand as sort of that one constant across the world where our brand stands for the same thing across different markets, but the way in which we communicate in each market may differ in order to achieve the same objective. Indeed. And given the relationship with your product in the emerging markets, many of which have very different access to education options. It presents a fascinating challenge and opportunity. And therein is the final question around commitment. What's your commitment to growth at this time and the relationship personally between marketing, however one defines it, and growth to your learners, uh, to your faculty, et cetera? So to us, you know, marketing is the key driver of growth, no doubt about it, you know, as an organization, you know, uh, whether it's direct marketing or indirect, you know, partnerships or channels, that is our, our primary driver of growth. And as such, it's uh, commanded almost, you know, a certain position ex internally because it is the window to the outside world and sort of, you know, letting whether it's faculty or any other team members internally know how the product is being perceived. Because ultimately, you know, marketing will drive acquisition, but then, you know, how the brand is actually executed from a, from a customer experience is what will drive referrals and satisfaction and retention. So the two go hand in hand. And I think as teams understand that more, they tend to value uh, marketing more highly than they may have in previous organizations. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Fadil, and for your candor as well. So in thanking all of our panel, I now offer my reflections on our conversations. Many factors contribute to growth and innovation at a company. A brilliant founding idea, brand purpose and mission, storytelling, talent, agility, and many more qualities that we talked about today. From this conversation and our work, I've observed two useful unlocks that help prepare companies to deliver innovation. The first unlock is to challenge your company orthodoxy with research. Embark on a deliberate journey a process to rediscover your shifting customer needs and marketing dynamics. Take a look at new habits, 
whether it be in the age-old, centuries-old activities of learning, entertainment, or banking that we discuss today, or shifts in behavior around working from home, shopping, virtual B2B sales. And identify how your products and offering align with the new behaviors and how your business needs to evolve. This fact-based approach, as we heard many are doing today, avoids a focus on no longer valid customer drivers. It also helps provide a framework to establish where along that customer, learner, um, advertiser, whatever your business is, where along that experience journey to expand your precious marketing resources. I would further submit that at its most strategic, this process, this fact-based process, will help you to reprioritize resource allocation internally, external partnerships and alliances, mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures, and reimagine your products and indeed operating model. The second unlock is to examine your rituals intentionally. Our company's rituals are made up of the behaviors of our companies how we set objectives, how we conduct meetings, how we measure success, how we celebrate holidays, and indeed the often idiosyncratic practices that reinforce company culture, brand, purpose, and identity. As we've heard from the five leaders here today, when created intentionally or, or encouraged intentionally at least, Rituals can cohere teams, build culture, and build community. I would offer, however, that when neglected, rituals will develop organically and can stifle growth and curtail innovation. This pandemic has disrupted all of our rituals. For companies like the audience members today and our panelists, this is an opportunity. Ask yourself, what are the employee behaviors you want to encourage or discourage and by whom? The exercise is to identify the rituals that continue to hold meaning, the ones that need to be sunset, and the rituals that need to be established to help your company to be inspiring, inclusive, and to drive growth. So with these thoughts, thank you. Thank you, panel. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Fadil. Thank you, Pato. Thank you, Gail. And thank you, Heather. We are very grateful for your presence this evening, this morning, this afternoon, and we look forward to tracking your progress as you live out the commitments shared today. As ever, thank you to my production team, led by Alison Carrion and Ashley Noonan, and assisted today by Kasia Krofcheck, Nick Smith, and Kevin Loftus. Meanwhile, on behalf of all of us at Siegel & Gale, I'm Margaret Malloy, thanking you. Thank you for joining How CMOs Commit. 
you've heard the strategic insights and professional commitments of top brand builders from around the world. I hope you also enjoyed my reflections on how this conversation is relevant to all marketers. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And please rate, review and share this podcast. Until next time, this is how CMOs commit.